Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed here of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Ebranian Bakshe Yek. زیرا خدا تا کنون به کدام یک از فرشتگان گفته است تو پسر من هستی امروز من تو را مولود ساختم و یا من او را پدر خواهم بود و او مرا پسر بلکه آن هنگام نیست که فرزند ارشد را به جهان میآورد میفرماید همه فرشتگان خدا او را بپرستند In speaking of the angels he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated weakness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. و نیز می‌فرماید تو ای خداوند در آغاز بنیان زمین را نهادی و آسمان‌ها صنعت دستان توست آنها از میان می‌روند اما تو بر جا می‌مانی آنها همه چون جامع مندرس خواهند شد آنها را چون ردایی در هم خواهی پیچید و به سان جامعی جایگزین خواهند شد اما تو همان هستی و سال‌ها و سال‌های تو را پایانی نیست to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Ebranian, Bakshe 2. Pas bar maz ke bar anche shenide im ba dekat har che bishtar tawajjuh konim. مبادا از آن منحرف شویم زیرا اگر پیامی که به واسطه فرشتگان بیان شد الزام آور بود آن گونه که هر سرپیچی و نافرمانی مجازاتی بر حق میافت پس ما چراه گریزی خواهیم داشت اگر چنین نجاتی عظیم را نادیده بگیریم این نجات در آغاز به واسطه خداوند بیان شد و سپس توسط آنان که او را شنیدند بر ما ثابت کردید در حالی که خدا نیز بر آن گواهی میداد با آیات و عجایب و معجزات گوناگون و عطایای روح القدس که آنها را بنابه خاص خود تقسیم میکرد The word of the Lord Good morning. 
As we uh, begin this series on Hebrews, uh, I want you to think with me about something that you enjoy doing. What is, what is some sort of hobby or activity that is your uh, one thing you enjoy doing? Is it, uh, is it reading? Do you like to be out kayaking? Do you like to carve wood? Are you a knitter? Or do you like sports? You know, what, what is it that you like to do? Now, as you're thinking about that, who's the best at that? Who's the world's greatest? Do you know who the best person is in, in, those, uh, in those areas of your interest? If you're a reader, who, who are your favorite authors? Who are the best authors? If you're a musician, who are the world's best musicians? Or a painter, the world's best painters. Wimbledon and the Tour de France have started this weekend. Who are the world's best cyclists and tennis players? We tend to think about who is the greatest, who is the greatest of all time. That's an acronym that gets used sometimes as the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Who is the GOAT in your area of interest? Ever heard of that before? Sports commentators like to talk about it all the time. It sort of keeps, their, uh, keeps, keeps them in a job, really, to keep arguing about who is the greatest of all time. Uh, a few months back, I was at a restaurant that had this painting, and this is where I, I tried to get a, a picture of this. Tried to get a picture of this, but I couldn't, I couldn't get a hold of it. But we were in this restaurant, and it was, uh, it was mimicking Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, speaking of the greatest of all time painters, right? The Last Supper, if you've seen The Last Supper, Jesus is seated at the table where he's, he's giving The Last Supper, the communion which we just celebrated earlier today for the first time. And Jesus is in the center, and then there's, there's four sets of three disciples down the table. It's a very Renaissance time frame. It's not, not first century Israel uh, idea of how the meal would have happened. But you have these groups. So this painting in this restaurant was mimicking this, but with sports athletes. All right? So on, on the left side, we had Muhammad Ali, Usain Bolt, and Bo Jackson. The next three were Wayne Gretzky, Serena Williams, and Tiger Woods. The next three, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Magic Johnson. The final three on the other side were Tom Brady, Michael Phelps, and the babe, Babe Ruth. And in the center, taking Jesus' place, Michael Jordan. All right? So, now I'm sure some of you might have some disagreement with some of those choices. Think about who got left out. Just a few comments from my perspective is that we've got, out of 13 people, we've got four basketball players. There's only one woman. 11 of the 13 are American. And one of the more problematic issues for me is that the world's most popular sport is not even mentioned there on the table. I mean, where's Pele? Where's Messi? Where's Ronaldo, right? Even if we're going to d debate which of those is the greatest of all time. Today, as we begin this series on Hebrews, Hebrews declares in no uncertain terms that there is a greatest of all time. 
And that goat is Jesus Christ. The one who has entered the heavenly tabernacle, who has made purification for sins, and finally sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses, the one who led the people of Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery. Jesus is greater than Aaron, Moses' brother, who was the first high priest. Jesus is greater than Joshua, the successor to Moses, who led the people of Israel into the promised land. Jesus is the greatest of all time. He is the goat. Now, while this is one of Hebrews' main arguments, I would say that it's not its main argument. Arguing that Jesus is the greatest of all time is part of Hebrews' way of, of making a final argument that it's important for the audience, for us, to be encouraged not to forget that he is the greatest of all time. That we need to not drift away from Jesus, that we need to hold on to the confession, hold on to what we have believed. The author of Hebrews calls his audience to hold to their confession of faith, to remember what they've believed, to persevere and not give up. Since this is the first message in the series, and since my day job is teaching the Bible, I hope you don't mind if I give you a few little comments about Hebrews. I did some more in, the, in this uh, summer's delve, but just a few little things that might help shape things for us as we, as we move through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, unlike many of the books or, and many of the letters in the New Testament, we don't know who wrote it. There's no author listed. You know, Peter and Paul's, uh, their letters begin, I, Paul, write to you, and so forth. Hebrews doesn't. It has this grandiose opening, if you notice that. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. This very big opening. It's not a dear so-and-so sort of opening. Because of that, Hebrews is also not a typical letter. I'm going to call it a letter because traditionally that's what it's been called. But the author actually refers to it in Hebrews 13.22 as a word of encouragement. So people think that Hebrews may have likely begun as a sermon or a speech that was then written down and then sent to groups of people. But we don't know who it was sent to either. Is in Paul's letters, again, I, Paul, to the church in such and such. Hebrews, again, with this grandiose opening, does not have the addressees lit, uh, listed. The title that we have that's come to us through Christian tradition is to the Hebrews or to the Jewish people. And, but again, that's a guess. because And that guess is based on the fact that what we see in the text of Hebrews is that Hebrews is oftentimes talking about Jewish or Hebrew tradition, Jewish characters like Moses and Aaron and Joshua, that he is, uh, there's numerous other aspects of sacrificial law and how the priesthood works, how the tabernacle and the temple function. These are all aspects of what Hebrews is talking about. So the assumption was that it was written to Jewish people who knew about all these things. 
It could have been written to anybody who knew about those things, but that's the tradition that we have, and that's why it's called Hebrews. So we don't know who wrote it. We don't really know what sort of literature is. We don't know who it was written to, but we do know its purpose, what it's about. We can see from the text, as I've been saying earlier, that it's very clear that the author is at pains to encourage his audience not to give up on Jesus, not to leave Jesus, who is the greatest of all time. He uses words like, don't drift away. Don't fall into disobedience. And on the positive side, the author charges them to move towards a mature faith, to hold fast to what they have heard, to hold on to their confession, and to persevere and not shrink back. You can see the purpose in the overall outline of the text, the, of the book of Hebrews as a whole. So the opening few first four verses serve as a prologue or an opening introduction. Then we have 1.5, Hebrews 1.5 through 2.18. This is just also a brief reminder that chapters were placed later. So if you know, if you receive an email, usually you're not just going to start in paragraph three, line five. Uh, chapter and book numbers in the Bible are functioning in that same sort of way. So then, then we have this focus on Jesus for these first, uh, this 115 through 218 section. And our sermon today and next week will be on these sections talking about Jesus as the appointed heir. 310 through 510 go into through an extensive discussion again about Jesus, but in his role as apostle, as one who is sent, and also as priest. And that priestly argument serves as a main argument for what Jesus has done in that 511 through 1018 section. Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant. And all of that leads up to this larger, more, what the author is really wanting to get at is in the last section is holding fast to the confession of hope. He makes numerous comments about that leading up to it, but after he's made this large argument about who Jesus is, Jesus as priest, then it's, okay, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to live that Jesus has done this for you, that this is who Jesus is? Just as with the original audience, we too need to be reminded about who Jesus is. They needed to keep following Jesus even in the midst of difficulty. They needed to remember what they had learned so they didn't fall into believing things that are opposed to what they initially believed. They needed to be encouraged and challenged to be reminded that Jesus is the greatest of all time. And in the midst of this conversation, in the midst of this text that we're going to look at today, we get glimpses of who God is and who Jesus is. Keeping in mind that larger purpose of being focused on not falling away from Jesus, on holding fast to the confession, let's look at this opening line of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There are three significant contrasts in this opening line, which I've highlighted by the different 
colors of text. So there's a time contrast in the past, in these last days. There is a to whom contrast. In the past, the to whom is the ancestors. If you have an older translation, it would be fathers. In these last days, the to whom is us, the audience, the author. Then there's a by whom contrast. By whom in the past was the prophets. In the last days, the by whom is the son. You notice what's consistent though? God speaks. God spoke in the past. God speaks in the last days. God spoke through the prophets. God spoke through the son. God spoke to our ancestors. God speaks to us. God speaking, there's a continuation of God speaking. What he has done before, he continues to do. And we can say that God still speaks to us today. What God spoke through his son, we have in the Bible, and God speaks to us through his word. And we hear that if we take the time to read it and to listen to what he has to say. After the author tells us here about God speaking, the author then moves into a discussion about who the son is. It sort of leaves off there at the end of that, uh, the middle of verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom, and then the rest of the verses, which in the original language is one solid sentence, all saying who Jesus is, who that son is. So I'm going to I find it really easy to just read over these very quickly, but there's some profound comments here about who Jesus is. The first one, Jesus was appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the son. He is the one who inherits everything from the father. Jesus is the one who has through whom God also made the universe. Jesus is a co-creator with God of all that is. Sometimes our translations say word there or universe. And the idea, the, the, the concept here is that it's everything. Everything that exists, Jesus has been, create, has been created through Jesus. And this picks up on a number of other ideas that we find in the New Testament about Jesus' co-creation with the Father. The Son also is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If you want to see who God is, you look at Jesus because he reflects God's glory. He is the exact representation of who God is. If you have trouble trying to picture who God is, which is usually the way it is, and that's a really good thing, Jesus is a way for us to sort of get a glimpse of who God is. Not only is the heir, co-creator, the representation of God's glory, the exact likeness of him, Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. Not only did he help in creating things, not only is the heir of all things, he helps to keep all of that going. 
He sustains it. He makes it possible for the world to exist and continue to exist. Jesus also provided purification for sins. That is, he made atonement or cleansing. He made it possible for sins to be removed and cleaned, for us to be made white as snow, as the Bible says in other places. And Hebrews will go into an extensive discussion of this, how all of this works and what went into that later in Hebrews 7 through 10. The purification for sins. But one of the other points that Hebrews makes ties into this last, one of these last points here, is that he did it one time and then he sat down. And where did he sit down? At the right hand of God on high. As heir, he has a seat right next to God. And he sat down because what God gave him to do has been accomplished. It's finished. He did his work and he sat down. As a result of this, we come to Hebrews 1.4. As a result of this, Jesus became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The name, which is God's name, the name above every name, is also his name which is why he's heir, why he sits next to God, why he is the representation of God, the radiance of his glory. But he's superior to the angels in all ways. So if he's all of these things, then why does Hebrews take the next 1, 5 to 14 to make an argument for why Jesus is greater than the angels? It's a good question. We don't entirely know but one possibility is that some of the audience to whom the author is writing had begun to worship angels. Or they thought Jesus was an angel. Or there's a, tradition, there's a Jewish tradition which shows up later in Hebrews and in Galatians and other places that when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, there was an angel who mediated between God and Moses. Exodus doesn't tell us this where we read the story. But later Jewish tradition, who sees God as so much distant from us as human beings, required an angel to create that, continue that distance. And so that the God, God speaking through the prophets and also possibly through the angels is not as significant as what God has spoken now through the Son, because the Son is greater than the angels. In order to argue that Jesus is greater than the angels, the author then cites seven texts from the Old Testament in rapid succession here in 1, 5 to 14. Two comments about these texts is that these seven texts from the Old Testament come from, the three, come from all three major sections of the Old Testament. In the Jewish Bible, those are called the law or the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. So we have citations from Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, Psalm 104, Psalm 110, along with a citation from Deuteronomy 32 and one from 2 Samuel 7. So the Deuteronomy piece is coming from the law, 2 Samuel from the prophets, and and the five Psalms. So from the entirety 
of what God has spoken before in the past, the argument is coming for Jesus as the greatest of all time who through whom God has spoken now. In these texts, it's been argued that we see support for these things that has already been said about who Jesus is, that he's heir, that he's co-creator, that he's the radiance of God's glory, that he's the exact representation of his likeness, that he sustains all things, that he's made purification for sin and he sits down. One of those arguments here, or one of those texts, is the first one, Hebrews 1, uh, Hebrews 1, 5, which is a citation from Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have become your father. Jesus' divine sonship is being argued here. His role is heir. God is speaking. God is speaking and saying to Jesus, you are my son. That's another aspect of these texts, is that even though, is that God is the one speaking. Even though if you go back and look at Psalm, the Psalms, uh, this is David. David writes this Psalm, Psalm 2. But here it's God speaking through the prophets, to Jesus. It's an interesting aspect of how the Old Testament works in Hebrews. We could have a whole discussion just on that, but I'll just let it be for that for right now. Another thing, if you do take the time to compare these texts in Hebrews, these Old Testament citations, with the Old Testament, you'll find there's a few little differences. Part of that's because Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and our Bibles are translating directly from the Hebrew. So for those of you who know multiple languages, you know language doesn't work in a one-to-one -one basis. And so there's some slight differences, just to be aware of that. But God speaks through Psalm 2 and says to Jesus, you are my son. And then again through 2 Samuel 7, I will be his father and he will be my son. So Jesus' sonship is argued. Later, we see also in 1-7, which is a citation of Psalm 104, that God says, in speaking about the angels, God says, he makes his angels servants and his servants flames of fire. So Jesus has been declared son, the angels are servants. They're on a lower level than Jesus, which is part of the argument here that Jesus is the greatest of all time. He's greater than the angels. Jesus is son. Angels are servants. He says to, and then he's, God speaks to the son in 1.8, a citation of Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, will last forever. This also reflects the fact that Jesus sat down on a throne next to God. Your throne, O God, will last forever. And in 113, which is a citation of Psalm 110, a very favorite psalm of this author of Hebrews that will be recited in multiple times through the next few chapters. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? To which of the angels did God say that? 
Jesus is the son, he is the heir, he is sat down at God's right hand, and his enemies will be made a footstool. The question ending this section in 114, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Aren't they just servants? This is echoing Psalm 104 that was cited earlier. Aren't these all just servants? Jesus is the son who has been given the right to sit down at God's right hand. It's kind of a long, strong argument. There seems to have been an issue with angels. So what? That happens in 2.1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Jesus is the greatest of all time, the heir, co-creator. God has declared that he is his son and given him a throne that is forever. The responsibility of the audience and to us is to pay careful attention to what God has said through the son. What has Jesus said? Paying close attention requires that we know what God has said. That we read the Bible, we read God's word, and we listen to what God says. You can't pay attention to it if you don't know what it is. Remember what you have heard from the beginning. And if we don't pay attention, we risk drifting away. I grew up in a small country church, and the pastor, when I was a young child, used this illustration multiple times. So it, it just sticks with me because I heard it numerous times and I heard my, heard my parents retelling it. I actually just told one of my sons this same illustration a few weeks ago. But my pastor had, when he was younger, had been uh, working on a farm with a tractor plowing a field. And this was long before the days of GPS uh, working tractors that had everything perfect and in line. So what you would do as a tractor, uh, operator of a tractor in those days would be you'd get to the edge of the field, you'd pick a point in the distance, and you would drive state straight, focused on that point, and have, then your rows would be straight in the field. As he was plowing through the field, though, he said at one point he looked back, he turned around to see how straight his, his rows were, and they were perfectly straight. He turned back around, kept going. When he got to the end and turned around to come back, he could see the exact place where he'd taken his eyes off that point. Because at that point, the rows were no longer straight. It's a reminder to keep focused. Some of you have probably paddled a canoe or a kayak before. If you're paddling across a lake, if you don't keep your eyes on that location where you're going, you literally do drift away, right? You zigzag across the lake and end up paddling twice as far as is, as is actually necessary if you'd kept your eyes on that point across the lake. Hebrews is making that same point. And, and that will be made later in two different locations, Hebrews 3.1 and Hebrews 12.2. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, our apostle and high priest. Fix your eyes 
on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That's what we're being called to do, is to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we don't drift away, so that we don't fall into disobedience. As a teacher of the Bible, I find very often that too many of my students think they know what the Bible says when they really don't. And that's largely because they, they rely on what other people have told them that it says, or they read it once or twice and then have forgotten the details of what actually happened. And that can very easily happen to all of us if we're not taking the time to read the Bible, to hear what God says, and to fix our eyes on who Jesus is, to pay close attention to Jesus' words. Our responsibility as followers of Jesus is to pay attention to him, to actually follow him, and to do and know what he has said. How God has worked in his life, we have to pay attention to that. By knowing who God is, what he has said and done through Jesus makes it more difficult to believe things that are contrary or opposite to what we first believed. Things that might include, the angels are actually better than Jesus. Or, I have to be perfect to follow him. Pay most careful attention to what we have heard. In the final few lines of this section, the author gives an example of why we must pay close attention. The idea is actually repeating the opening lines of the letter in many ways. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed distributed according to his will. In the original, this whole thing is one long question. One long question. How, if we ignore this, will we escape? The argument here embedded in this is that God gave the law to the people of Israel. That's in the past. What God spoke in the past to our ancestors, that was binding. People were punished if they didn't keep it. Now that God has spoken to his to us through his son and has given us this salvation, the purification of sins, how are we going to escape punishment if we drift away from it? So what are we supposed to do? Pay close attention. Jesus is the greatest of all time and God has spoken through him, his son. We must pay close attention to who Jesus is and what God has said. If we don't, we will drift away. Focus your eyes on Jesus and his word. Paying attention requires knowing who God is, knowing Jesus, knowing his word, the Bible. We cannot pay attention. We can't pay attention to others if we're in a conversation on a device or doing something else, right? The same is true. We can't be focused on Jesus if we're doing too many things. Focus means focusing. When it comes to Jesus, the greatest of all time, greater than the angels, we must pay closer attention to him and to what he said.
and persevere so that we don't drift away and we hold on to what we believe. Amen.